This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman. British typhoons struck eight Houthi targets last night. Katie, can you give us the details and also tell us about this row about whether the Speaker of the House and whether the opposition were informed about these strikes? Yes, so this is the second um, set of strikes which the UK has taken part in alongside the US. Now, the first time around, uh, there was that cabinet call in advance. Um, You had a situation where Keir Starmer and the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy were consulted and the Speaker of the Commons, Lindsay Hoyles, also consulted, leaving his drinks in Parliament to go to that briefing. It meant that when the strikes occurred soon after those conversations, it was only really the Liberal Democrats coming out and saying, oh, Parliament should have had a say, you need to go to Parliament and all, and all these things, because it happened in a period where Parliament was not sitting. But it was quite a small, I think, uh, scale of unhappiness, and there was broad support from the two cross parties. But I think what's important to note was when all that happened... There was also, as a result of that, diplomatic unhappiness from the US to the UK uh, at the fact that news of the strikes leaked in advance to the UK media. So you had the Times political editor when soon as the cabinet call was taking place, putting it out, and it meant that the press knew largely what was, you know, knew what to expect. And therefore the US press started covering, uh, you know, what was happening, quoting UK journalists. And that has widely been reported that it led to uh, frustration on the US side. So I think when you look at what happened last night, which is a fresh series of joint airstrikes. I mean, first off, it points to the fact that they've had the Iran Batuvis who've been kept targeting ships since those strikes. So the immediate result has not been what they wanted, which was to stop this from happening. But then I think if you look at the politics of this, you have figures in Labour saying Kyrgyzstan was not consulted in advance. You have the Speaker unhappy. You have Rishi Sunak now due to address the Commons on the matter. And I think what we are potentially getting to is there's questions about whether you should consult Parliament before acting. Now, I think we've seen that Keir Starmer has said, despite what he said previously, if it's short, limited action, he doesn't necessarily think you do need to consult Parliament. But if the Prime Minister doesn't consult the leader of the opposition or other figures, does that start to change the temperature of the Commons on where these things sit? But I do think that detail on the US factor is important just because you can certainly not blame Labour for it in the sense it really seemed to come from the cabinet call that leak. But I think it did add to the sense that if you want to be a trusted ally of the US and be, you know, work with them, limiting the pool of people know in advance is something that would help with that. So has that been a factor here? Isabel, what do you make of this? And also, do you think that if the strikes are proving to be ineffective, as Katie says, Houthi attacks have continued on ships in the region. Do you think the politicians might look to take different courses of action? And do you think that the strikes might lose political support? Well, this is the the big question. And uh, I thought it was interesting that Lord Cameron, when he was uh, talking about it this morning, was very much sticking to the targeted, limited uh, language that we heard with the first round of strikes. But as Katie says, what happens if you need to make more strikes? And does it then become not a limited engagement? And I think, actually, in a way, it's, it, 
now is a good opportunity for MPs and ministers to, to really think about what they think Parliament should do in these situations. And uh, Keir Starmer, when he uh, was being asked whether he actually disagreed with himself, which seems to be quite a common thing um, that Keir Starmer struggles with, over whether MPs should get a, a, a vote or not before action. His argument, his answer was uh, that he wanted to codify the convention, which is probably the most Keir Starmer sentence I've ever heard, that was already existing in the cabinet manual of Parliament getting a chance to um, debate. And he'd also suggested during his leadership campaign legislation so that Parliament um, would get that um, opportunity to vote. Um, now, None of that is, a, a, you know, the reason he's saying he wants to codify that is because it's it's something that has been given to Parliament ad hoc when prime ministers feel that they do need to uh, ask for consent for um, uh, more long-term action. And if you look back at David Cameron's attempt to do that back in 2013 um, with Syria, uh, he, he writes in his memoirs that he feels that... Um, he felt at the time that he'd actually have more problems down the line if he didn't give MPs the opportunity to debate and vote and give their consent on the action at that point. But he didn't need to. And there's been a debate in politics ever since, really, firstly, as to whether he should have done that or whether it was very irresponsible of him to give them a vote and then, as many people believe, not make the case for the intervention and rely too heavily on, on Labour, who turned out to be duplicitous on, on, on this or whether actually the Prime Minister should be able to retain the, the prerogative of being able to uh, take the country to war. And I think there's there's a number of questions that need to be answered. One is, um, does Keir Starmer, uh, does Rishi Sunak, I think more so Keir Starmer actually, do they trust their own MPs um, to have the uh, foreign policy understanding and I suppose courage of their own convictions to vote on war and I say this because I think and that you know the government's trying very carefully not to link these two um, situations but the situation in Gaza has shown that a lot of MPs uh, particularly Labour but not just Labour are very heavily swayed by the strength of feeling in their constituency over something and if they get a lot of constituency communication about something then they may be liable to change their mind um, and you could say that's a good thing or you could say it's a bad thing because MPs are elected to not just to represent us, but actually to be better informed than we are on really complex issues. Um, and I think MPs, if if you really pushed MPs and they were you know, being brutally honest, I think a lot of them would say they don't feel better informed or wiser than their constituents on these big issues. I'd, I'd say that, you know, from... from more than a decade of covering Parliament, I think MPs' understanding of foreign policy is probably the worst out of all of the areas that they have to um they have to cover as parliamentarians. And so there is a lack of confidence in that. But it does then mean that not only has the executive said, oh actually, you know, we don't want to be strong. Um we want to cede that strength to Parliament, but actually then you have MPs who are ceding that that um that decision, that strength, that confidence to their constituents. And you might say that's fine, or you might be quite troubled by that. Um, either way, we haven't really had the proper debate about what Parliament should be doing. It's all been very ad hoc. 
and tends to come up around a crisis like now. And that's often the worst time in which to uh, to make decisions about these things. I'm trying not to use the phrase codify the convention, um, but I think there needs to be a discussion about it. Katie, Rishi Sunak suffered a defeat in the Lords last night. This is the ratification of a treaty between the UK and Miranda about the deportation of illegal migrants. Can you tell us what the difference is first between the treaty and the bill? And also, you wrote a piece about this for Coffee House and you said that the defeat in the Lords was unprecedented. Can you tell us how serious you think it is? Yes, so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so of, of course the context is, last week Rishi Sunak had a very special press conference in Downing Street where he he urged the peers not to ignore the will of the people and block his Rwanda plan. Now, that was largely aimed at the safety of Rwanda bill, which is what uh, has been going through the Commons. That's the 11 Tory rebels who voted, tried to vote it down at third reading, uh, a railing against. And that has not actually reached the House of Lords yet. That will happen next week. But before we even heard, you already have the Lords ultimately rebelling on the issue of Rwanda. That is because when the Supreme Court came back and said the scheme was unlawful, and it was a worse ruling, I think, than many had anticipated, the answer from number 10 was two parts. One being the safety of Rwanda bill, declaring Rwanda a safe country, and that being accompanied by a new treaty signed by Rwanda and the UK, which tried to address some of the issues that the Supreme Court had found to assure them and involved various new checks and so forth. Now, there's been a House of Lords Committee on International Agreements that published a report last week, um, which said the promised safeguards were incomplete and that 10 steps would need to be taken before implementing the policy. Now, some of these are just things that the government has said it will do in the treaty but haven't been done yet so can you show proof of them and proof it's working before you send anyone to Rwanda and therefore they recommended the treaty is not ratified last night you had uh, peers in the House of Lords ultimately vote to delay ratification at 214 votes to 171 and the reason this is unprecedented is because since those powers have existed you have never had a situation when the Lords have delayed ratification but it's also worth pointing out that in terms of what Tiflis has, they don't actually have the power to stop a, an international treaty being ratified. That only rests with MPs. So in a way, I think probably there are two main takeaways from this, which is, you know, it isn't like it isn't as low, oh, Rishi Sunak's scheme is, you know, stone cold dead. Instead, I think it does raise the question that if the House of Lords have said, we don't think this treaty is ready and it should be delayed, does that then inspire a similar movement by MPs and perhaps some One Nation MPs along with Labour MPs think, you know, this is actually the best way to change it. Forget the safety of Rwanda bill. Can we try and delay or block the ratification of the treaty? And then secondly, given you have the safety of Rwanda bill next week, does it give us a flavour of the mood in the House of Lords, which, if you went by list result, would be to add various amendments and try and massively soften the whole thing? Because there is a division in Labour in terms of thinking on this. There are some around Keir Starmer who don't really want Labour peers to, you know, have a go with a few amendments, but don't don't get involved in a protracted game of ping pong because they don't want a situation where Rishi Sunak can turn around and try and blame labour for the fact it's not working i think they think that the path to it working is tricky enough that it's much better to fail on its own terms than to have a situation where you can say well it wasn't the tories it was labour but then if this is anything to go by perhaps there are some labour peers and some tory too who uh, will have some independent thinking of their own 
Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you very much for listening.